This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! From the Embassy Row Studios, the crap part of the Upper West Side of New York City, the crap part of the East End of Long Island, it is the Men in Blazers podcast, Roger. Oh, we back! Like Kyle Walker breaking lockdown, Davo. Oh, to hear your voice, I can only compare it to the sweet warbling sound of the most exotic goldfinch. Tell the people what they want to hear. How are you holding up in lockdown, baby? Are you still a bit twitchy, though, Rog? You're still into the bird life. On the birds. I've been yeah. talking a lot about the birds because they are, I'd like to say, keeping me sane. But I think people who listen to us every day and definitely producer J. Davis will know that sanity was given up. Well, it's hard to pinpoint. Let's just say some weeks ago. I did spend, and I talked about this on yesterday's WGFOP podcast, I spent the most 10 exhilarating minutes of my weekend looking at a very, very, what I thought was a rare pure white kind of dove flittering around in the tree uh, only to find out to my horror after about 15 minutes as I inched ever closer and it didn't move that it was just a paper bag a napkin (laughs) flattering and yeah the fact that I found that it was just a napkin in no way diminished the joy I experienced as my soul soared like a dove in those 10 minutes, I wouldn't give it back for anything, David. And, and at least, ultimately, you were able to identify it and name it for what it was. Yeah, it's quite funny because I've got this app on my phone, Merlin app, which a lot of GFOPs have recommended to me. Thank you, Cornell Labs, uh, for sending it to me. And so I took all these photos, like getting ever closer, and I kept uploading it to my bird identification app on my phone, being like, what is it? And then it would come back and say, not recognized. And this app, like it recognizes every single bird. If different birds of different species crossbreed, they recognize it. It's, it's like my plant identification app that I love. I love my plant identification. And the more it told me it didn't recognize a bird, the more I was sure this is how Roger's head works. I'm not like, oh, it must be a paper bag. I was like, God, I must be seeing something unbelievably rare. I'm going to find out from fellow birders, because I do have fellow birders now, that I am spotting something that's normally found only in the savannas of Africa, right here, right now in New York City. And that was how my mind was. It wasn't like, oh, God, if it's not recognized by the app, maybe I'm just looking at a piece of discarded garbage. No, Rog thought this is a a once-in-a-lifetime birding moment. And it was in a way. How are your kids finding your new birding hobby? How are they digesting it? I think it's in a long line of rather bemused issues with dad up there with the beard, <laughs> which is uh, up there with a new found p- predilection for German football, with which I've become utterly off the deep end obsessed. So I think it's a long line of, of pandemic rogisms. You know, this week's been all about Oh, chess, chess, chess. I mean, so um, like, I think there's a, if birding confuses them, I'd say take a number birding because there's a long line, David. Um, but why are we talking about birding when there's important things to talk about? And I don't mean football. I mean, your garden, man. I mean, this is serious. I mean, I've become... I mean, we, we've both descended into nature. You've descended into nature through your binoculars and you're looking at Slash the madness. bird life of New York City. <laughs> I've become so obsessed with my back garden. 
I honestly, I've got two trees that haven't even bloomed yet. Spring comes so late to the east end of Long Island. And I'm just very concerned. And I, I literally, I'm calling tree specialists on a daily basis saying, should I be worried about them? Should I bring them in for a checkup? How do we handle this? Um, today, the big issue is the fertilization of the lawn and the weed killer. I mean, and it, honestly, if there are any GFOPs out there in the uh, landscape maintenance business, groundskeepers, perhaps knowing our audience, they've probably got PhDs in grass, uh, all forms. Is it a business or is it a game, David? I don't know, but I'm trying the to land- figure are you out. In the, are you in the landscaping Should game? Should I be putting all organic products on my lawn? What is the difference between the organic products and the natural pro- and the regular products? Are there different levels of organic? Do I even need weed killer at all? Or should I just let everything grow wild? Basically, all I really use the lawn for is playing two football football with my chihuahua, who's just got so good at that game. I'm thinking of introducing a third football into the game right now. Um, oh, and perhaps Greg a couple Berhoff of extra is dogs. Listening and your, your mind, <laughs> his mind is just blown by this yeah. news. And then fencing. Chihuahuas. I've been dealing a lot with fencing today, oh, Rog. I love fencing. I've been dealing a lot with fencing. Um, what, are you taking up fencing? No, 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 no. Fencing as in putting fences around my property. Because I've got oh, fences mate. around most, but oh, the fe- front of the, way, the property. Fencing the sport was the sport not taken by Rog. They actually have always believed fencing would have been like my minute bowl, the sport I was actually mentally built for but back to your fencing if you did more pilates rog and got a little leaner i think you could be amazing at fencing oh, back to your fencing <laughs> so the fencing um is uh fencing the perimeter of the property because i've got mo- all of the property is fenced in rail fence uh, obviously you and most of the listeners know what rail fencing is that's so american those sort of wooden rail fences that are just so good looking um but I've got to get some fencing because I've got one dog that's become a bit of a runner, Rog, a bit of a runner, and he just likes to find little ways to get out. And so I've got to fence the whole property. Oh, Greg Berhalter's writing down bit of a runner and underlining it. It's all helpful, Greg. And I thought I could just go and buy, I could buy fencing in 50-foot rolls. It comes four feet high, 48 inches. I could buy it in 50-foot rolls. And now I've no, I've got to dig a trench, Rog. I've got to dig Mate. a one-foot trench. So I've got to buy five-foot fencing in 50-foot rolls. I've got to get in there in the hedges somehow, dig the trench, get it in. This is, honestly, I don't have time to pod. I've got to go right now and start the job. A 1917-style Pretty much. Oh, Not Mate, quite as deep. You and I are living parallel lives. We should start a podcast which is called Today in Fencing, where we take turns. <laughs> you talk about your fencing, and I talk about just like the fencing that exists in my imagination, which is Rog with an epe, just destroying global all-comers and winning gold for America. When you talk about your grass problems, Davo, your grass and my grass, two different... Uh, by the way, I haven't seen your kind of grass in months at this point. Bite your arm off for some nice bit of grass. For me... This has all been about chess, chess, chess. Like a ton of you in lockdown life, I have re-embraced a game I played oh, so much of when I was a kid. I was actually, I've talked about this on the podcast before, many of you know I was, and I don't like to boast, Davo, I was board five for the entire city of Liverpool under nines. Yes, we played on Saturdays. And I used to get on the bus. I used to actually dread getting on the bus to drive to other cities because I was. We we had Saturday school. Did you have Saturday school? David? Yeah, for a while. So we had Saturday school, which was a cruel and unusual punishment. So I had to get on this bus on a Saturday in my school uniform, my tie, my blazer, and all my teammates would be in just their Saturday clothes. There, you know, their Sergio Tashini shell suits. And I get on this bus, 
And it was like a scene from The Simpsons in which I was Ralph Wiggum. I'd get on that bus and everyone, everyone, everyone would point at me and then laugh because I was in my school uniform. We'd then go and drive to Wolverhampton or Newcastle somewhere and play their great chess players. And I'll tell you, unless you've been laughed at, by fellow chess players, you do not realise just how far <laughs> you have to fall to get to the bottom of the barrel. Did you play chess as a kid, David? Uh, no, I mean, I, chess is one of those games that I could sort of start the game and I could get about five moves in and I'd be like, oh, why on earth did I want to set out uh, to my, go and do you're this? You're my favourite kind of chess opponent, one whose will to live I can just absolutely smother but I'm playing all my old chess friends from my under nines team on my chess with friends and I feel a bit like it's unlocked my inner brodge David I'm constantly even when I'm not playing I'm noodling over openings and any GFOPs who are chess players by the way any of you who are chess players and in the landscaping game we do need your help why don't you do you should do a tournament you should do an MIB invitational chess tournament and take on all comers at chess I think it's a great idea Rog what I'd be like, oh, I'd love that when I walk around like Magnus Carlsen just taking on sixty-eight opponents. I could. Why, why am I not? Why am I not doing that? Why am I not doing that blindfolded? Just like consecutive <laughs> chess, just speed, consecutive chess, blindfolded, naked. I could do it for charity. No, Let me know, by the no. way, anyone listening. I need some help on the great defenses. I'm trying to experiment with the Caro Can baby. Oh. I'm also strangely obsessed, and I need your help with this, Davo. I'm spending a lot of time lying awake at you know early mornings, birds singing. It's like five o'clock, and all I do, I lie there and remember old games, battles old. And here's what I want to know, Davo: Why is it that I only remember the games lost, not the trophies I won, but the searing miscalculations and opportunities not taken? Why is it those that haunt me? Are you talking about chess matches or yeah. Everton Football Club? <laughs> um, that is sort of the way you're wired. And you actually, in some way, enjoy losses more than you enjoy victory. Yes, mean nothing to me. Mm. Victory's fleeting. Losses, oh, don't take away my losses. 93% made of losses, David. <laughs> oh, you're right. You've solved it. It's proper Everton. I had one question for you. How are you keeping up your... We haven't spoken about this at all. Are you working out? Are you still doing your Pilates? What is your workout regimen? How's that working in the apartment? Oh, it's chess. Chest. <laughs> your right arm is amazing. Beard growing. Um, there's been a. There's definitely been an uptick in Birdwiser, Jägermeister, Talisker, and Malbec uh, intakes, Dave. I would say that that that's that workout, that evening workout is soaring. I feel like it's a leading. I, I am working out. Uh, on a daily basis, but I feel like I'm declining into token gestures. I miss my plates. I do miss my plates. I interviewed Dominic Calvert-Lewin and the two of us spent a lot of time lifting up our shirts and showing each other our <laughs> six-packs. And I realised I realized already, two months in, mine is not what it was. His! His is now a 10-pack. Mine... J-Dubs is too kind, but he would agree. Mine's slipping. Yeah, my nine-year-old son, George, has become obsessed with working out during quarantine. He's downloaded this app. It's brilliant, called Swork It or Swork It. And he has all these these workouts on it. And he comes over every single day and we do a uh, we do a workout hour with each other. I'm trying to get him to be able to do pull-ups. That's a very hard thing for a nine-year-old to go and do. I don't really understand because he weighs nothing. He should be able to pull himself up right now. But we're working on his uh, body weight techniques. He likes his working out. I'll send you a picture of his six uh, six pack too. You can send it to Dominic Calvert Lewin. Andrew Ross walking. <laughs> 
Okay, Rog, the only man busier than the aforementioned Carl Walker, albeit in very different ways. That's you, Roger. You've never been busier. Another flood of Men in Blazers content this week. A flood. It's in a, the it's face. a deluge. Tomorrow, we drop a quite remarkable pod. That is your interview with the great singer slash songwriter Jason Isbell. And just a oh. reminder to all GFOPs to keep your hashtag PL lookalike contest entries coming. This contest presented by the GFOPs at Jägermeister ends Sunday. And we've had some magical entries. Our favourites will receive one of your limited edition Live in the Nightmare mugs that you use so perfectly on the TV show, Rog. Can we have a toast, please, Rogelio? Oh, Dave, I want to raise my third first bud of the day to the life and work and memory of little Richard. Oh, that rock and roll pioneer. I took his passing hard. Just a bloke who lived life by the extremes. He was a wild man and a man of God. A bloke who somehow fused his theological leanings. He actually retired from rock and roll in 1957 to attend Divinity School for a bit. He managed to fuse that with a predilection for orgies, angel dust and alcohol. I mean, his music trailblazing. Steve Van Sant captured his pathfinding genius best when he tweeted, Little Richard was the man who invented rock and roll. Elvis popularised it. Chuck Berry was the storyteller, but Richard, he was the archetype. Damn straight, that is so true. I owned all of Little Richard's albums when I was a kid, and I was totally mesmerised by the way he was able to fuse an emotionalism and the musicality. I mean, if you've not listened to songs like I Can't Believe You Want to Leave, listen to them because they both thrill you and they break your heart, which is incredibly hard to do. But it was, it was Little Richard's persona that I marvelled at in Liverpool. He just set the blueprint for all those who admired him, almost all of whom I admired. Elvis, the Stones, the Beatles, all of them followed Little Richard because he performed with his heart and his soul. He once (laughs) was feared to have had a stroke on stage, but then just leapt up while the medics were trying to treat him and insisted on carrying on his rendition of Lucille. He then partied hard. He loved, loved, loved. He really did, David. He loved an orgy. I mean, oh, if he was born in our day, he would have been a wonderful Premier League footballer. His historian told the story of how he was never happier than when talking about his orgies. He said he told stories like, we had this wonderful orgy going. It was one of the best I've ever been to. And in the middle of this orgy, someone knocked on the door and I just shouted, just a moment, I'm in the middle of an orgy. Oh, I love a man, Dave, who's comfortable being himself. A man who took a journalist to meet Muhammad Ali, only to have Ali bound down the steps and say, you are the king, little Richard, you are the king. Like many, I believe little Richard was ripped off by the performers that came after him, most of whom were white and were able to pass. So I raise my bud fam blood fam to Little Richard, a great American character, and his approach to life, which was summed up by his response to the Sunday Times, who asked him to describe a typical day. And Little Richard replied, I wake up and worship, I get on my knees, I pray, I thank God for the activity of my limbs, and then I order room service. Oh, courage. You know, one of my favourite towns in America, Rog, where I played a bit of tennis, is Macon, Georgia, which is oh. the uh, birth town of of Little Richard. I remember being there. Uh, I was teaching 
girl, I think her name was Sissy Strong. She was a very uh, good... America. Very good American tennis player. And um, uh, I remember uh, driving through town, being shown every place that Little Richard had had his, like, part-time jobs when he'd been a teenager and where he'd first performed and all those kind of things. I'll never forget it. I thought of that uh, when I heard he died. Did you knock on any doors and have someone shout back and be like, I'll be with you in a minute. I'm just having an orgy. <laughs> no, it didn't happen. <laughs> Did not happen. Well, not in Macon, Georgia. Uh, but that's another story uh, okay uh, Rog let's get into it we are just days away we think we hope from the return of European club football you're a little bit more excited about it than I am the Bundesliga scheduled to return this weekend we'll talk about how and why German football has been able to race back at least compared to other leagues with the athletic senior writer Raphael Honigstein but first big zoom call number five yesterday among the Premier League clubs and it was like most of the league's other Zoom calls, vague and inconclusive, little agreement. There's a will to move forward, but massive hurdles remain. Dave, good news and bad news. Oh, German football back because Germany as a nation have coped so well with flattening the curve, testing, contact and trace. Britain, not so much. 30,000 Britons have lost their lives and counting, which is... A macabre context for football to be agonising about its return. And the notion of a Premier League restart on June the 12th, it remains a dream, much mooted. Something I think we all agree, if you're listening to this podcast, for more than just fencing and chess, it's something that unites all of us. We all yearn for, long to move towards the return of the Premier League under, honestly, any conditions. But all that collective, fantastical thinking, it doesn't make it so. And what you said is true. Significant hurdles remain. This is all high risk, high stakes, high wire stuff, to be honest, with the world watching. So first, the good news. The British government greenlit June 1st return of, quote, cultural and sporting events, which can take place behind closed doors for broadcast without having any crowds whatsoever, i.e. let the ghost games commence. But the second issue is less good. The clubs have already lost between $370 million and $432 million in broadcast revenues to global TV companies because of non-fulfillment of broadcast contracts. That money's gone, even if they do find a way to limp towards the season's end. So those two forces, the opportunity of being able to have ghost games and the realisation that their cash flow is being hindered, if they don't, those are the two forces pushing them forward. So there's opportunity, there's impulse, there's will for the games to return. Here are the issues, and let's break them down and discuss each one for a moment, Davo. When, where, with whom, whither, all those W's. First big outcome of yesterday's call, the Rebel Six, a.k.a. the self-interested self-sabotagers whose fear of personal relegation outstripped the collective dread at the potential collapse of the entire effing league as we know it. They were essentially defanged yesterday because the Football Association stepped in and said there will be no voided season. The clubs will either play out the season in whatever conditions or else that outcome will be decided by a formula, which we'll talk about in a minute, like weighted points per game. So the bottom six who are trying to come up with every single reason the season should not go ahead suddenly realise, holy crap, that's not going to work anymore. So first, David, do we agree? that the bottom six stand so far fighting, putting out every single barrier to play and hoping for a voided season is not cool. Or put another way, 
Was it total coincidence in your mind that only the possibly relegated teams were, quote, totally worried about the health and well-being of football players and fans? Yeah, of course. It was massively hypocritical. You know, having said that, you understand what the financial impact is for those clubs and they want to survive. And so I don't really fault them for it. But I think hiding behind it just being about health and wellness, I don't think... Uh, I think that was disingenuous. The CEO, Richard Masters of the Premier League, poor guy, I do feel for him. He didn't sign up for this. He's a rookie in the role and suddenly he's dealing with genuinely the, just the worst dream of any league CEO that there can be. He did hint yesterday that there had been for the first time a talk about what if the season isn't completed, which is to me the ultimate reflection of just how hard the pathway to resumption in England might be. And then the debate, is going to be oh, just a savage political fight, which is what algorithm do we use to project the final table? And there's two real options, either a simple points-per-game formula, which projects forward based on what's happened in the past, or a weighted formula, which takes consideration of games played, home and away, which would slightly tweak the ultimate outcome. So at Norwich and Aston Villa fans, bad news, your teams plunge through the moon door of relegation irrespective. But if the former is used, just projecting through simple points per game, the killer cherries of Bournemouth would tumble after them. But if away games are taken into account, they'll be bye-bye bubbles, Davo. That is a nerve tangler. David Moyes, by the way, will be gutted if Bournemouth go down and not West Ham. Gutted, I tell you. <laughs> I think the other... Um issue and no doubt you're getting there is about player power and it's rumored that 25 percent of players you know are very scared of the resumption and don't really want to go back to work don't really want to go and play again this is where i think that what's happening in the bundesliga this weekend is very important we of course wanted to succeed of course the narrative because germans are efficient and brilliant at everything so of course the germans have figured out how to go and do it and german football will be perfect I actually don't assume that the return of the Bundesliga is going to be a perfect experiment. I think they're going to have mass problems. There are a lot of players in Germany who are reportedly very unhappy at going back, don't feel that all the precautions have been taken. Um, And I think, though, for a lot of Premier League players, they're going to be looking at what's going on in Germany and trying to decide. Because right now it's fine for the players to say, you know what, we really don't feel like doing this. We don't think it's a good idea. But the second you go to Premier League players and say, you know what, you might not be worth as much money. You might not be earning as much money. When their agents realize that the entire transfer market might implode, when um, the, their car dealers, their Ferrari dealers, their, their, their you know, G-Wagon dealers start realizing that the money isn't there and the, the posses and the, um, you know, their entourages start realizing that they're threatened by, by the lack of football. I think there will be some player power uh, coming on the other side and fighting to get back to go and play again. Yeah, I mean, I think that is absolutely fascinating because that was the second big message coming out of Monday's meeting. The talk about now the imperative step is to start to engage the Premier League football players who have not been really talked to in this ongoing process and the agonising. You know, the, the, the big issue that's been a huge stumbling block is about neutral grounds, about whether the team should play out games in a handful of hygienic and policeable stadia or whether that actually shatters the sporting integrity of competition and that they need to play these games in every stadium, home and away as they're doing in Germany. And Richard Masters announced the league is actually going to try and negotiate with public authorities to see if a way could be found for every home game to be played in its rightful venue. But the players' issue is a massive one that's not been 
dealt with, not been grappled with, not even really been open with. And he talked about how we have to start engaging the players this week. That is the new battle line that needs to be engaged with, listening to their fears, winning them over to the, frankly, unglamorous future of hazmat cloak plans, rife with swabs and testing. Masters says clubs are determined as part of the consultation process that players' concerns and questions are heard. They will later this week. But you've got like Danny Rose, who yesterday on Insta Live said something. I mean, this is truth telling from Danny Rose. Football shouldn't even be spoken about until the mortality numbers have dropped massively. People's lives are at risk. You've got Norwich City, Justin Bieber, doppelganger, Todd Camwell tweeting out after Brighton announced that three of their squad tested positive for the virus. He just tweeted, players are human too. I mean, do you feel for the players, David? Do you think they have a right to feel like guinea pigs? Look, of course I feel for the players, but at a certain point, players aren't different than any other human beings. Um, We've all got to figure out a return to work. I think that you will start to hear a very different thing from the players when their, their paychecks, when their wage packets are in jeopardy. And there are a lot of people right now who, whose lives and whose ability to feed their families depends on the playing of these games, the people that work in the stadiums, the people that do all these things. They're not going to be paid forever by the clubs at the point that they have no revenue. No one can expect them to go and pay them forever. These clubs, there are clubs in the Premier League that are in legitimate danger of not just filing Chapter 11, of literally going back, just going down, just not existing anymore. The entire... Um, pyramid could collapse and at a certain point people have got to accept it i'm not the expert that can tell you whether that should be today or whether that should be a month from now or two months from now or three months from now but there are going to be new procedures in place there is going to be some level of risk at all times whatever we do i did a radio show in dc uh, last week and talked about the financial challenges to the owners of these teams and their minds were blowing you know they normally focus on american sports they're like what the whole enterprise is in economic peril and i was like oh my god mate where have you been like this is true for english football this is true for american sports in general we we build these sports owners up as if they are just utterly immortal gods and and yeah yeah, invulnerable i I mean i couldn't help i think i destroyed this poor guy's uh, sleep pattern for the next next week if you speak to anyone for instance in major league baseball the number of mlb teams that are quietly being put up for sale because the business model there which is very much based on ticket revenue when you project out how that's going to go for the next year there's a lot of peril in all sports ownership right now. Yeah, I mean, the NFL, the NFL has furloughed a bunch of their employees all over their organization. The NFL haven't lost a single dollar in terms of TV revenue or even crowd revenue at this point, but they've begun to furlough staff in preparation for this. I feel for the players for a different reason, David, because, I I mean, I'm trying to think about it from their minds. They became footballers, partially for the love of the game, let's say. But also, the better they became, the more of the bling life they access, the fast cars, the best tables at nightclubs, you know, sex on tap. When they go bird watching, they get the best binoculars. You know, aka, yeah, the bling life that football offers. You know, the, the, the football gives you entree to, or should I say offered entree to. Bling life does not square away with having your brain scraped twice a week when you're tested and living in quarantine in a hotel with your teammates. I do. I feel terrible for Kyle Walker. Kyle Walker 
without the orgies, Davo, is arguably just the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> there's there's a real pun to be made there. Um, but I don't, I mean, yes, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a very different life whenever these players return. I think that's very key. I'm fascinated to watch the Bundesliga. I do want Come to see on. how it works, what the players say afterwards. And I think once Premier League players, who are no doubt going to be watching the Bundesliga, probably because they're gambling on it, um, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what their reaction is to it returning. Last word on all of this from our mate Steve Parrish. CEO of Crystal Paris, who's largely been the voice of cautious, careful optimism on all of this. He said, there are no easy answers, but we would be derelict in our duty to not find a way of resuming the season. That is the approach to me of cautious optimism that I would like to hear more from everyone involved in football. I have to say, I am personally finding the task of keeping up with the unspooling spigot of news just debilitating. I mean, it is incredibly nerve-fraying, not just the football. I mean, the football is, is really hard getting up every single morning and just being bombarded by the, the kind of seesawing narrative. But every one of you listening must feel the same. Everything, these, these discussions surround all that we care about in life. Community, the communities we're all members of, schooling uh, for all of our kids, New York City's future. And I didn't fully understand why this was so debilitating until I got an email from a GFOP, Valerie Meltzler, which described the feeling best, the act that we're all caught up in. She sent the German word for it, Dave. Of course, the Germans have a word for it. Are you ready for this one? Yeah, go. It's Offnungsdiskussion-Orgien, or something like that. Angela Merkel coined it to describe the public debates about opening up pandemic life. And it literally means, and I love this, it means debate orgies. So this is this show is sponsored by orgies, Davo. Debate orgies about the easing of lockdown restrictions. We've all just been in a two-month orgy, Davo. One that would do exhaust even little Richard. Carl Walker reportedly loves a good off nung discunjuj orgy. <laughs> yeah, it does, does it? That's his favourite kind of orgies are debate orgies. Okay, uh, Rog, let's take a few gfop questions now starting with one that came in via twitter from at jack underscore curry i'm assuming you've given a lot of thought to what pep's mask must look like given the strength <laughs> of his scarf game oh, i want football to come back just for that david what do you think because we got some clues pep's sweater game filled with redundancy pockets within pockets, zippers that have zippers cargo pants which have the pockets in completely the wrong place so what do you imagine? I imagine that it's a okay, that it's a hoodigan, right? So it's the cardigan with the hood. It's the hoodigan. It's belted. And at the end of the belts, it goes up into um a sort of a strings that go around the back of his head and have a mask attached. So it's really it's a It's a maskigan. It it's a mask hoodigan. Oh. A mask hoodigan. Mate, I think honestly, you know sometimes jokes become real. Yeah. God, Greg Berhalter, get on it, mate. I, I think it would also be made of cashmere, of, so something even rarer. I was looking up the vicuna fabric from the llama-like animal in Peru. The other thing that would be wheels within wheels, I think it, Pep's mask would have its own tiny mask. <laughs> and he'd, he'd, probably, he'd probably wear it around his scrotum rather than his mouth because, yeah. you know, the Pep. But all I know is, whatever it is, Jack Curry. It sounds terrible, but the very first time we all see it, 
we'll go, oh my God, somehow it works and we'll all want one. I think what kind of masks Premier League managers would wear, I think it's very interesting. I mean, you've got to imagine that, you know, uh, Roy, Roy probably yep. has got his old World War One gas mask <laughs> that he can just go and get out of the basement. So he's going to wear one of those old World you War One gas masks. Steve Bruce is, uh, just, is, made a bacon. is using a nose bag from a horse, <laughs> which he's just stuffed. Gone down the old knacker's yard, got the nose bag from the old nag fixed it on his ear, stuffed it full of pies. Three or four pies he can... Mun- he say to his wife, you know, I had four pies be half, for half time and no one noticed. Well, no, Jose would have an invisible mask because it's like, you can't see my mask, I'm wearing my mask. I'm wearing a mask, it is an invisible mask. I have a special invisible mask that you don't have and you don't have access to. It is more effective than your mask. Rogers would be Altoid-scented. No, I think it would have a mirror on it that it would have a sort of extension, like sort of a selfie stick, and it'd have a mirror back that he could look at himself in it while he's wearing his mask. Oh, mate, Brodger's mask would have a painting of Brodger's mask on <laughs> yeah, it. <that's> very true. <laughs> oh, I've got to say, the one thing about mask life is, and everyone's saying this, you learn about your breath when you're wearing your mask. Oh, and I do think masks are to breath what rain is to hair, Davo, in the Premier League. It would be true. I would not want to be Jurgen Klopp's mask. (laughs) Jurgen Klopp's mask is always going to flavour country. (laughs) Let's take another question. Okay, this is from GFOP Joseph Tobin. Is it wrong to like bad weather more than good? For example, I'd rather live in Skye or Donegal or Buffalo than in Tampa Bay. I believe you appreciate the good days more. If every day is sunny, you become spoiled. The cold makes you harder, more resolute. Thanks for the Daily Ravens. Brightens an otherwise dismal quarantine like a sunny day in Aberdeen. Joseph Tobin. You're speaking Roger's language. Is this a, is that is this actually a raven from you, Rog? Is that my, is Joto my burner account? Is that what you're yeah, asking? That, exactly. I do. I will say this is like a Rog question because if we look at the options he throws out, Sky, Donegal, Buffalo, often lumped in with Sky and Donegal in terms of beautiful, serene, oh, romantic places, often put together. Where would you rather be, Sky, Donegal? Or Tampa. Well, how would you pick Tampa? That is definitely a loaded argument. Just Tampa holding things down for Team Hot people. I think we've got a disagreement on this, though, right, David? Oh, my God. I'd much, much rather be in the warmth. Much rather. I do Believe me, I like seasons. You'd rather get your bits out, wouldn't you? You'd I like to get seasons. But, you know, season in the northeast, it is, honestly, it is still winter in the east end of Long Island. It is... It snowed this weekend, for Christ's sakes, Rog. It's time for it to get warmer. I'm fine with occasional sunny days, as long as seasonally we sort of get what we what we expect. Oh, mate, I've, I've talked before on this podcast about this. On Essentially, I don't have many beliefs, but I truly believe this, that the world is divided into two kinds of people. There's people who just live to wear shorts. Mostly Californians, I find. Oh, I love my shorts. Even when it's freezing, they just want to get their legs out. Anything to stroll around town in their shorts and burks. And then there's there's the other people, the people who feel most at ease when reveling in the cosy embrace of Shetland wool cable sweaters and Donegal tweed pants. I'm getting myself, I'm honestly getting a tingling just thinking about Donegal tweed pants. I'm most deaf in the latter category. I love a bit of higgy of warmth 
of a Talisker Scotch on a winter's day or a winter's day in the middle of summer. I love a winter's day in the middle. I never feel more alive, Davo, than when I'm asleep by a fire. So give me Buffalo. <laughs> this is the sole reason that we yes. cover the Open Championship, of yes. course, because it's usually winter in the middle of summer. Take me to a crap hole. Never happier. Give me Buffalo. Give me Donegal. I love the Isle of Skye. I've actually thought a lot during pandemic about where I'd like to live if we end up just making TV by Zoom. And I'm open to GFOPs. I put together a list, David, of what I need. I think our lists are slightly different. I need lots of nature, bird life, a good banjo teacher, brilliant Wi-Fi and chess. That's like genuinely, I don't ask for, probably quite good schools. Don't ask for much, David. But I think you would be, essentially your list would be Miami. (laughs) I miss Miami. I do miss Miami. I love Miami. Uh, Yeah, I'll work on my list for next week, Rog. I'll tell you what I think is essential. Okay, Rog. English football may be weeks away at best, maybe months, but this weekend it looks like our other podcast, Men in Lederhosen, is going to be doing huge numbers to catch up on the new normal of a fanless Bundesliga and sketch out a Cliff Notes version of this season's storyline so far. You spoke to our old mate, the athletic senior writer, Raphael Honigstein. After the magical number of 69 days away, all eyes are on the Bundesliga. This weekend, German football grabs the spotlight, helping my beloved Korean top flight back into the shadows. Let's start with the good news. Thanks to the abundant testing and contact and trace system Germany's employed to protect the nation, Bundesliga is slated to come back this Saturday, May 15th. It will, fingers crossed, Return with Geisterspieler. Oh, the Germans always have a word for it. Ghost Games. It's a genuine joy to welcome the senior writer at The Athletic and author of the quite magnificent Klopp biography, Bring the Noise. Oh, Raphael Honigstein onto the pod to tell you all you need to know to revel into the action. Rafa, welcome. Hello. It's very nice to speak to you, Roger. Joy to see you, mate. Oh, the question Premier League fans and fans of all American sports want to know, how did Germany get its football back so quickly? Well, fingers crossed we can actually go through with the games because the, day, the situation could change daily. You know, tests are ongoing. And if you have positive tests, as we saw with the second division team, Dynamo Dresden, the local health authority who are in charge might still send you down for a two-week quarantine, in which case, of course, if that were to, God forbid, happen to a Bayern Munich or Dortmund, um, the situation would look a little, little bit different. So they think that they have been able to minimize the risk as much as possible by quarantining, quarantining um, teams. They are training together, they're eating together, they're sleeping together by keeping distance even when they are um, amongst themselves. So not really sharing the dressing room, not sharing cars. Uh, you know, players are expected to take their own cars to um, the uh, training, for example, and to uh, home games. Uh, and for away games, they won't be in the, in the team buses. They'll be in little uh, people carriers. So all these things designed to keep the risk as um, close to, to zero as possible. But of course, there is an understanding that um, you cannot exclude risk all the way. And you're just hoping that uh, the net will be sort of close enough to keep out any infections or if not at least identify positive tests so quickly that they can take them out of the system and not infect everybody else. Can you describe the new reality we should expect on match day, the protocols we should expect other than no crowds at all? 
So the protocols, for example, mean that uh, coaches will be sitting on the sidelines with masks. They can take them off uh, to shout, uh, but then have to put them back on. Substitute benches will be staggered, will be a bit like the old Wembley, but just with half the people, probably people in different rows sitting uh, real distance from each other. Uh, the ball boys will wear uh, masks, they will wear gloves as well. Um, only 10 uh, media allowed after the game. Uh, there is going to be a virtual press conference. You have to send your question by text message and then get an answer that you can see on the screen. I mean, completely <laughs> bizarre, really. Um, little things like players shouldn't uh, celebrate together. They might, you know, touch elbows or feet, but no hugging, no kissing. Um, and even no things like um, a joint walking in. Uh, and, you know, the obligatory team photo, all these things have been abolished. No handshakes, of course. Um, so it's going to be a very strange affair. But my hope is that once the game is actually on, you'll be somehow able to see past all that emptiness and maybe still enjoy the players playing. But it's, it is going to take some getting used to, I think. You mentioned at the top there has been a challenge this week. It was revealed that there have been 10 positive coronavirus tests, which kind of threw the return into chaos as the entire Dynamo Dresden squad, who play in Bundesliga 2, the second tier, have been forced into 14 days of quarantine. Two of their players tested positive for COVID just seven days before they were due to restart the season against Hanover. So it is going to be a stop-start affair. Yeah, possibly. I mean, certainly for Dresden and the teams that they were supposed to play over the next two weeks, uh, they will have to uh, wait and, of course, then see if they can squeeze them in to the fixture list. Uh, and you're right. I mean, it could easily happen that somebody else tests positive, let's say on a Friday night, on a Saturday morning, the result comes through and then the local health authority have to take a decision. Uh, let's say, uh, you know, Union Berlin are playing Bayern and uh, one of the Berlin players has tested positive then they will have to take a close look at him. It could be also a staff member, of course, and say, how many people has he been in contact with? What is the risk that by the time he has tested positive, he's had a chance even to infect somebody else? Because if he was tested negative two days before, then he tests positive two days later. Um, I guess the accepted wisdom is that you haven't had a chance to be infectious yourself. But these are all sort of minute details that the local health authorities have to work out. And because Germany being a federal system, not too unlike the US, um, we could have different decisions being made, even um, different decisions for teammates, because some of them could be registered as living in Cologne, and some could be living in Dusseldorf, but both could be playing for Schalke. So we have, could have two different decisions for the same case. I hope that we won't get into these situations but I think the league aren't as blue-eyed and naive to think that it's not a possibility that we could. We are going to find out what German Florida is, and I cannot wait to hear that solution. But Bundesliga CEO Christian Seifert, great GFOP, says, we are not changing our plans. I mean, this is going to be the new normal, not just in Germany, but in sports in general across the globe, in which risk management is going to become as important as player management in a way. Absolutely. And that's been one of the key arguments for the league. Um, there is a financial imperative for them to come back quite early because they hadn't received all the TV money for the end of the season. And of course, as you know, clubs budget for all that money. That money's already spent. Some of it might already been, um, you know, securitized for, for money that they spent a long time ago. 
Um, but the, the underlying message is, as you said, even if we were now to wait a couple of months, nothing really changes. We will still have to have the same testing regime. We'll still have to have the same um, way of minimizing risk as much as possible. And it, this could go on for another year. I mean, it could well be that we won't see any fans back in any stadiums in Europe before next February, March, maybe even April. So whatever the Bundesliga do, and however awkward it might look, it still is only really a snapshot of what every league and really every economic company that tries to keep their employees safe but still keep going will have to grapple with. I mean, these are all uncomfortable questions with no easy solutions, but I'm afraid we'll all have to deal with it. What is the mindset of the players then? I mean, they have entered quarantine camps. They're now at the pointy end of all of this. In the Premier League, there's some sense that the players resent being guinea pigs. Have the German players bought into the return or are there serious misgivings? And if so, how vocal have they been? I think there's a whole array of, of feelings here. I think the clubs have done by and large a good job understanding or making their players understand why it is imperative to come back, why they can't just sit this one out and wait for things to change. That's the number one thing. The second thing is the medical concept that we have talked about that the league have devised was done with the team doctors of the clubs. So they themselves have bought into it. And I think they're in a good position as uh, people of authority of trust inside the camp to sell that to their, to their players and make them understand that this is really the best way to do this. Uh, but of course, there are concerns. There are concerns of players who have vulnerable partners. Um, you know, we saw a case with a Belgian player at Cologne, Birger Festret, who made the point, you know, isn't it a bit strange? We have some positive tests, but we're still training. My partner is, uh, you know, is vulnerable. Underlying condition. Exactly. Some work cut out, I think, to make him understand that um, these considerations are being taken care of. And I think in the end, the way they resolved it is that his partner actually left to Belgium, which, of course, also not really satisfactory in a way. But these are the kind of dilemmas that we're faced with. Um, some players are concerned about more mundane, if you will, effects of coming back after this lengthy spell off where we have lots of injuries because you start not being fully match fit. How can you be? Um, you know, will uh, that pretty tight calendar of nine games in the space of what, five, six weeks um, put too much pressure on them physically? Um, there are all these concerns. And of course, the, the, the wider kind of moral considerations of what it is like to come back as football when there are still some people in the front line working in care homes, even in Germany, who can't get tested as easily before logistical reasons, even though the capacity will be there. How does that kind of uh, play out? But there is also a view, and again, I hope it's right, that uh, players will ultimately also just enjoy playing uh, because that is what they love best. And maybe they, like everybody else, will at least sort of find 90 minutes of peace, if you will, for those isolated moments. It's only, it's only a, a dream maybe, but maybe it will happen. There's the moral conversation. There's the footballing conversation. There's also a conversation about opportunity. Is anyone talking about the wider ramifications of being able to get this league going ahead of England, ahead of Spain, ahead of Italy, and the opportunity it creates for teams to get new fans, global branding? So are people talking about that, the nature of the opportunity? Or is it really just all about getting back to business? I think it's more the getting back to business. Of course, for some of the smaller teams, of course, for the league, it is an opportunity to, to grab the spotlight for at least two, three weeks. But the league are very careful not to talk about it in those terms because they don't want to be seen as 
being somehow brash or even proud about the fact that they're coming back because they themselves see it as an emergency solution and they don't want to kind of take credit for something that they feel they have no alternative but doing. I mean, Christian Seifert, I believed him when he said, I would be happier if other leagues were playing because that meant that they'd be in a situation where the crisis, if not has subsided, but at least would be under control enough for people to engage in football again. Uh, but unfortunately, that is still going to be a few weeks away. And uh, the ghost games, you know, the games behind closed doors, I think for all leagues, uh, will go on for many more months. When we think of Bundesliga, we think of rapturous fan scenes. Bundesliga without fans is like seeing me with hair or Queen without Freddie Mercury. I mean, we all love the story of Borussia Mönchengladbach offering their supporters the chance to purchase a cardboard cutout of their likeness. Over 10,000 have chipped in, establishing a COVID fund in the process. But how are the fans taken to the idea of the games going on without them? Has there been much of a backlash? Um, I think backlash is too strong a word because the fans, the organised groups have understood that the Bundesliga have no choice to come back. I think they they don't like the fact that this is going ahead because effectively what Bundesliga, what the football is telling them is you are not essential to our business. We need to stage the games. We'd love to have you. But the most important thing for us right now in this moment in time is to have the games for television. And that is an uncomfortable message to hear as a fan. Uh, but it is the truth. And even they realise that um, it's better uh, swallowing that bitter pill, if you will, than to wait for a better future, which might come at a point where those clubs have gone bust. So I think there's a by and large an understanding, but not many clubs, uh, not many fans as far as I know, have bought into it and tried to make something positive out of this dilemma in the way that the Gladbach fans have done. I think most are feeling that the best we can do is basically just ignore it. Maybe they'll have some banners that are being put put in to represent the fans. Uh, there are discussions going on. I think as we go on, hopefully, as we see more and more of these games, I think more and more fans will start thinking about what they can do to maybe bring some atmosphere or some kind of voice or some kind of visibility to those games. And I think the clubs at that point will welcome it because it does look better than just having this empty grayness of, of those empty seats. Um, but at the moment, I think everyone's sort of just trying to figure out what the best way of dealing with the whole situation is, including crowd noise, for example. I mean, I, like you, watched the watched Korean League, or at least I watched a couple of minutes. And even though it was fake, it kind of worked because it kind of tricked you into thinking a game was going on. And I wonder <laughs> if the Bundesliga will come round to that view, um, that it's better than, than nothing. Uh, out of consideration to the fans so far, they've said, no, we're not going to do it. Some local broadcasters might do it. Sky in Germany might do it. But um, I think that's going to be an interesting development to see if that might change. Yeah, I mean, the Korean League was so good with the sound. The only time I realized what was going on was when the halftime whistle went and it was just met with rapturous silence. And that is going to be the challenge to tackle. A look at the top of the table. Perpetual power by Munich. Currently four points clear of Borussia Dortmund, driven by Jaden Sancho's 14 goals and 15 assists. RB Leipzig, trademark Germany's most hated club, also floating around with their dreams of becoming the first East German champions, propelled by Timo Werner feasting. We do have ourselves a title race of sorts, Rafa. Yeah, we do. Certainly in comparison to the Premier League or one or two other leagues, um, four points. 
is not that much, especially if you consider that Bayern still have to travel to Dortmund. However, what does it mean at the moment having to go to Dortmund when the stand is empty, when the stadium is empty? But still, I guess home advantage in some guys will survive because you'd still rather just go to your own game, taking your own card and travel up uh, in, in a long bus journey in a people carrier. So we'll have to see. But Dortmund have been looking um, very stable, very strong in recent weeks uh, before um, the Bundesliga was brought to a halt. Leipzig I wouldn't rule out yet. Uh, Julian Nagelsmann is one of the most fascinating managers, young managers in German, in, not just in German, but in European football. And he's devised quite an interesting mental framework for this. He told his players, look, this is our Euros. We have nine games to play. If we win those nine games, we might win the Euros. Not sure how that's really going to translate into everyday um, action, but it's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, Gladbach, they were leading for nine weeks, um, but maybe lost a little bit too much ground. But they are a hugely popular club, one of the really the biggest club in terms of support because of what they did in the 70s and, and early 80s, where they were sort of the, the Liverpool of, uh, of Germany in many respects. So there is real competition. But there's also that ominous feeling that uh, Bayern under Hansi Flick, who's taken over as, as manager from Niko Kovac in November, aren't just playing really well, but actually might be playing some of the best football in Europe at the moment. We saw what they did against Chelsea in the Champions League. They are a team that's really coming to its own again. And uh, it's going to be very hard, I think, to stop them if they can continue in a similar vein. Oh, I love that notion. This is our Euros. I'm going to use that when I'm struggling to get me through the working week. This, Roger, is your Euros. At the bottom, just four points separate Mites and Fortuna Dusseldorf in 15th and 16th. Josh Sargent's Werder Bremen also fighting to stay in the league. They've been a top flight mainstay since the 1980s, but have four points to make up with a game in hand. The league picks up where it left off with match day 26. Oh, and the pick of the games this weekend, the Raw Derby. Dortmund against Schalke without that fame yellow wall bellowing them on. Is there any fear at all that fans are going to concentrate around the stadium for such a massive history-soaked fisty cup? Not really. Um, the fans, uh, the, the organised fans, have been very, very responsible. Uh, a lot of the ultra groups actually um, went out to help with hospitals, what helped to distribute food for needy um, parts of society. They've been very, very engaged and you wouldn't expect them to break the protocol and to violate the social distancing rules by making a point that um, doesn't really have to be made. Everybody understands that uh, ghost games are not much fun and they will not, having said we don't support them, then turn up outside the stadium to either celebrate or protest uh, in a way that's kind of self-defeating. So uh, those fears were discussed at club level, but it very quickly became apparent that um, there's very little real chance that, that people will do it. There's also been a threat that you might see the game being abandoned and whoever the, the perpetrators would be would see their own team being docked the points. <laughs> we have no reason whatsoever to, to turn up. So... Again, hopefully it, it won't come to pass. God, Germany. One of the true joys of the Bundesliga from a Kenny Powers beer-swilling, self-interested American football fan view is the sheer number of United States young guns who ply their trade 
in German. Obviously, to me, all of these giants are in the top 10 footballers in the world right now, but let's do a speed round. I'm going to say their names. Rafa, you give me a sense of how they are viewed from a more objective, more realistic German perspective. Are you ready for this? Yep. Tyler Adams, 21 years of age, from Wappingers Falls, New York, now at RB Leipzig. An amazing guy, one of the best interviews, as you know, um, can talk for hours and hours, classical, typical New Yorker, but also a really, <laughs> really good footballer. I mean, this guy, um, to play in this team with the quality around him is, <sighs> is some feat in its own, and he's just getting better and better. He had a difficult season with injury, but um, I'm not exaggerating. or not playing to the, to the gallery here when I say that he is a, a real star in the making. Oh, Rafa, you can come on any time. Weston McKinney, 21 years of age, also Little Elm, Texas, a mighty, mighty Schalke. And McKinney is a similar case. I mean, the guy is super versatile, can play almost anywhere, has played almost anywhere apart from in goal, um, but is beginning to find, I think, really his range in that midfield position in a much improved Schalke team under David Wagner. Last year, he really struggled. They were booing their own players at the Feltins Arena. For a young kid, especially <laughs> if you're not German, that is a lot to deal with. It's a much happier place. And uh, as you know, he is a super happy guy. And I think this is a real key season for him. We saw the improvement. He's perhaps um, a guy that doesn't jump at you with the way he plays. But he's super competent, technically very gifted, uh, really dynamic, a really good player. Again, uh, without being overtly pro-American in this, uh, the guy's really good. Oh, come again, Raphael. I should mention Raphael is wearing a Run DMC sweatshirt as we discuss these gentlemen. CONCACAF cousin Alfonso Davis, the Spurs slayer, 19 years old, Bayern Munich. Ah, you're claiming him for, for yourself now, yeah? I'm a big-hearted man. North America, pro-NAFTA. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, what can I say about Alfonso Davis? I mean, the guy is just, Wow. Wow. I mean, I didn't think he could get to that point as quickly because at the beginning of the season, there was talk he might go out alone, couldn't really get into the team. Um, at Bayern, they were saying, you know, the guy just has so much pace, but when he gets on the ball, the, the crosses just go absolutely everywhere, but not where they should go. But I think he's learned how to slow down at the right moment by still using the pace. And the development that he's had since about November when he became a regular, October, November, has been, out of all these guys, he's been the most eye-catching, the most sensational sensational player. And um, I mean, the sky's the limit. You would already now see him as one of the best left-backs in the world. And this is a guy who's played basically for six months. So where will he be in five, six years' time? Oh, up there, up there in Leighton Baines's ether. One note, Gio Reyna, you wrote a fantastic profile of the 17-year-old in The Athletic, detailing his early steps on the Dortmund Development Finishing School that's pumped out such talents as Christian Pulisic and Jaden Sancho before him. His upside could be as big as what, Rafa? I mean, hypothetical eyes and overhype wildly with us. Where is he, skill-wise? I'm not very good at uh, overhyping and uh, hyper. <laughs> that's, a, that's all I've got. That's all I do. Between Christian Pulisic and Julian Green on the spectrum, where would you put him? More towards the Christian Pulisic end of things, uh, but perhaps even more. I mean, look, we have to see. 17, a lot of things can happen. Um, older listeners might remember certain Lars Ricken, who broke through at Dortmund as a youngster. 
scored one of the all-time classic Champions League goals in the 1997 final, oh. but then never really kicked on because he had injury problems. And now we don't wish that on anyone, uh, of course not on Gio either, but if he can develop also physically the way he's doing, I think he's got everything to really make it at this level. Um, I was surprised, I must tell you the truth, when I saw him mid-season training camp in Marbella in Spain in January, when he'd really just started training with the team first time, or full time, I should say. And he looked still a little bit slight to me. And I thought, yeah, he's good, but he's probably going to need another two years before he barks up. And, but then two weeks later, he starts scoring goals for Dortmund, which are unbelievable. And it just told me, A, that I don't really understand enough about football. And B, <laughs> that uh, the guy has got serious, serious talent. Um, so let's not overhype him. But, I mean, he could really be something very, very, very special. Oh, the hype train is leaving the station now, America. Last question, Rafa. I'm an Everton fan. I like to dream. I like to struggle and suffer. I like to celebrate minor, minor victories as if they are trophies. Thousands of Americans are going to be watching Bundesliga this weekend. Many need new teams to support to help them. Who's the Everton of the Bundesliga? It's not an easy one. Um, I mean, Schalke perhaps... Yes! ...way, in a way. Yes. Schalke have never won the Bundesliga. They've won the old German Championship, but they're still waiting to win the Bundesliga. Everton. Um, they are playing in blue. Everton. They play in a post-industrial city with a huge mining heritage. They are dysfunctional, though, as a club. They don't have a lot of money, and they're always their worst, own worst enemy. Oh, mate, I think about four out of five of those just made my nipples tingle. If you're throwing John Joe Kenny and also, oh, my mate David Wagner and his visions. Oh, Schalke, I'm all in. You've sold me. Feel Leben dich. Oh, Rafa, I've got to say, you're a beautiful man. In all seriousness, if you are aching for football and you want to read a book that will fill your days with meaning. Pick up Raphael Honigstein's Klopp biography. It will, one of the top 10 football books I have ever leased through. All I can say to you, mate, is thank you and enjoy your football. Thank you, very kind of you. Always had you pegged as proper Schalke, Rog. Gazprom is my new drink of choice. <laughs> Do you like that? Do you like my shirt that I got? Oh yeah, it looks nice. Oh, mate, I've got to say, when I put this, it's just like Everton shirt, but with um, without the sports pencil, which is a fantastic. If you're ever in Kenya and you fancy a little gamble, sports pencil. Don't they play in yellow, Schalke, normally? Or do I just think that all German teams other than Bayern Munich play in yellow? Nah, mate, Dad, we hate yellow. Oh, it's Dortmund who play in yellow. Yeah, and we're playing Dortmund on Saturday, 9am. Oh, you're Fox. not saying we. You're not saying we right now. You know I'm a lifelong Schalke fan since last <laughs> week. <laughs> oh, Roger. This is just what I need. Bundesliga, Roger. Yeah, this yeah. is gonna be this is gonna be unbearable. Good Julian! Okay, Roger, instead of the bald mark, we're gonna do something slightly different and offer a product tip activity self-isolation hack that's helping us get through these times. It's no longer just limited to books and high-end kitchenware. What are you putting in the bald mark this week, Rocher Leo? A book! Oh, The Last Taxi Driver by Lee Durkey. A magnificent read. A 
darkly comic novel about a single miserable day in the life of a flailing middle-aged failed academic who drives a fraying town car for a ramshackle taxi company operating on the outskirts of a North Mississippi college town amongst the trailer parks and housing projects. The narrator reads Buddhism, worships Shakespeare and Bill Hicks as he drives desperado after desperado around town trying desperately to hold his life together. The author himself was a struggling writer who drove a cab for a long, long time. And to me, he's written a masterpiece of the human condition and a temperature check for America. This book, probably best described as the finest novel Irving Welsh has written in a long, long time, if Irving Welsh was an American. It's a dark pleasure. Let's face it, we all need a dark pleasure right now. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Oh, Rog, my dark pleasure. CNBC, and I'm not saying this, full disclosure, obviously, we are employees of NBC Sports. We we do our crap show on NBC Sports, we cover the Open for NBC Sports, but I've got to tell you, CNBC, which I've never really watched before, it's just been sort of vaguely on perhaps in a gym in the background. I love CNBC. CNBC is just an alternative, optimistic version of the news every single day. They never want the market to go down. They only ever want the market to go up. It is optimistic every single day. Yes, some may say Jim Cramer is delusional, um, and his politics we probably don't want to get into. But it is just for a pure slice of optimism on a daily basis. CNBC is just, I have it on all day now. That's what I watch all day. That is what has replaced sport for me, just watching the market. And by the way, I have very little money in the market. It's not really where I, it's, that's, it's not like watching my money. I just like watching CEOs talk about the challenges of running their business. And I like just the optimism of the network. So what is CNBC telling you to put your money in? Large malls and mega stores or J Crew and, and pork distribution? Digital. Obviously, there's a big move to digital. Also, you just want strong, strong companies that pay dividends. You want to uh, think about people who are going to rebound really well um, and, you know, could likely you know, weather this storm. But also, good companies, you know, most value of stocks, Rog, is built into way into their future. It's not just about what goes on in the next three months, four months, five months, six months. It's built way into the future. And so it's always good. Like, somebody who's got a successful company will figure out how to go and bring it back. I do worry about restaurants, though, Rog, that entire category. And we love restaurants, both of us, but I do worry about restaurants in the future. Oh, mate, can I give you a, a stock tip? Yeah. Put all your money into masks with other masks on them. We know who the spokesperson for that is, Rod. And also, okay. also non-organic compost. <laughs> okay, give us one final Jägermeister toast, Rod. In the absence oh. of football, perhaps raise it to life, Roger. Oh, mate. First, please listen to our Jason Isbell podcast tomorrow. It is my favourite thing uh, that does not include Davo, sadly, but my favourite thing without him that we've done in a long, long, long time. I do believe the secret of life may be found oh in that conversation second give us a call 646-450-9472 on the men in blazers hotline i am actually going to call one gfop who leaves a question back and have a long conversation with them which we are going to tape but that is for wgfop the bald and finally i want to raise my jägermeister this human emotion in a glass to producer j-dub's wife oh ashley to 
who was featured in Columbia University magazine yesterday. The link was in our newsletter this morning if you want to see it. And while I was despairing, because I was yesterday, it's a dark day, I read this piece about her. Ashley, for those of you who don't know, is a nurse practitioner. She is beyond inspiring because the other thing about her, she is 23 weeks pregnant with J-Dubs and her first child and she has been battling on the front lines of New York City's pandemic. There's a photo of her, so wonderful, so pregnant, so hazmatted up and it was astonishing. And her quotes are human and inspiring. She says, I watch women go into labour alone and my heart broke for them. As a first-time mum, I cannot imagine doing this without the support of a partner. That empathy ran in the face of the understanding that this protocol was necessary. The rational, grounded science nurse practitioner on one shoulder was constantly in one ear and the stressed, anxious and emotional mother-to-be was in the other. I raise this Jägermeister to Ashley, to all medical staff across America. Courage, self-sacrifice, compassion, empathy, all of that that you're showing is inspiring. A level of heroism, to be candid, that can barely compute to you. Oh, excellent. You know, usually, you know, you find a couple and you think, oh, like he did really well to marry her or she did really well to marry him. Honestly, both of this is just two such exceptional human beings, Ashley and producer JW. They both did so well to find each other. Uh, okay, Rog, you can follow us on Twitter at Men in Blazers, at MC Davis, at Rog Bennett, on Instagram at Men in Blazers, uh, at Embassy underscore Davies, uh, you can Facebook us, Men in Blazers. You can send your ravens to the crap part of Soho. You can always email us at meninblazers at gmail.com. Vendabunk, Rog. War pig. Who wants to sex Matumbo? I like snacks. Balls win, balls win. Take that, Gloria. Balls lose. To tweed. Abrogado, rock on, mate. Kung fu fight in America. Love you, Davo. Love you, Rog. Oh, love you, J-Dub's wife, Ashley. Keep couraging America and have those public debate orgies.